Hello, and welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the next installment of Arbitral Insights. Um, I'm Gautam Bhattacharya, partner in, in the Global Disputes Group uh, in London. And I'm joined today by Simon Greer, who's off council in the same group in London. And we're going to talk to you about one of our recent cases and some of the interesting points that, that came out of it. So, Simon, I can ask you to tell us about a particular arbitration case that you've worked on with me that particularly stands out in your mind? Yes. Good afternoon, Gautam. There is one case in particular that jumps to mind uh, from a number of years ago because it had a bit of everything in it. And it was about as international and international arbitration as you can get. Uh, The case involved two SEAC Singapore seated arbitrations relating to two contracts, one governed by English law and one governed by Singapore law. We were acting for the respondent who was facing a wide variety of claims brought on various bases, including allegations of breach of contract, misrepresentation and IP infringement. The alleged value of the claim was in excess of 300 million US dollars. I say it involved a bit of everything because the claimant was aggressive and quite unpredictable. This led to a lot of different interlocutory issues arising in the case, including consolidation, possible bifurcation, a dispute over jurisdiction and applicable law, amendments and re-amendments of the claimant's case, threats of injunctive relief, security for cost considerations, and battles over disclosure and red firm schedules. The breadth of the claimant's claims also meant there were a lot of different legal issues to consider, as well as complex technical and quantum evidence from experts. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, there are certainly a lot of... uh challenges and points that arose, as you say. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about why you felt this case was a particularly international, international arbitration? Sure. Um, As I mentioned, the arbitrations themselves were seated in Singapore. However, the, the claimant and its lawyers were in Australia, and the respondent and its witnesses were based in India. But our client's legal function instructing us was in both the USA and London. So this almost involved the breadth of the populated world in terms of time zones. And the case also involved issues of English, Singaporean, Australian, US and Indian law. Uh, We put together a Reed Smith team composed of lawyers in London, Singapore and the USA in order to give the client worldwide coverage on what was a fast-moving matter with new issues arising regularly that needed to be addressed swiftly. Another interesting element, which is particularly relevant in today's COVID-19 climate, was that there were a number of remote interlocutory hearings due to the parties in the tribunal being spread across the globe. I recall at the time that it was interesting to see how these operated effectively and enabled people from across the globe to participate in the hearings. The use of technology in remote hearings has existed in arbitration long before COVID-19 and, in my view, will likely become even more prevalent in the future particularly as technology gets better and better. 
Yes, Simon. Well, I agree with you that um, now, given that we're in the COVID-19 era, uh, remote hearings are very important because of all the travel restrictions and uh, remote hearings are likely to continue for quite a while to come uh, in this new different that we're all practicing in. Now, the next question I want to ask you, I can't resist asking you because there's an obvious answer, but you mustn't give me the obvious answer. You've got to give me your honest answer as opposed to the obvious answer. But what did you particularly enjoy about working on the case? Well, I should first say my honest answer is I did enjoy working on the case. Um, There were a number of reasons for this. Certainly the strong international element made it a fun case to work on. Uh, It was great being part of this Reed Smith team spread across the globe and interacting with them on fast-moving issues was genuinely very stimulating. I enjoy working with people in different countries and from different cultures. It's one of the main reasons I wanted to become a commercial lawyer in London in the first place. So when I have the opportunity to work on truly global cases, I relish it. The client team was also great to work with, as well as being international and from different cultures. They're very engaged in the matter and invested in the issues. And it was great working with them on strategy and having debates on particular points. The unpredictability and aggressive approach of the claimant also kept me on my toes. I recall that there was normally some sort of new issue raised by the claimant that we needed to address each week. And having a fast and mercurial arbitration like that keeps you on your toes and challenged. Finally, I should say, probably most importantly, our client won the case. The claimant's case was dismissed in full and our client was awarded its legal costs. That was very satisfying after a lot of hard work and commitment. Uh, The dispute was really important to the client's business and while it was ongoing, it was having a significant disruptive impact on important commercial endeavours that the client was trying to advance. Helping to achieve such a decisive victory for them in all respects really was rewarding. Thank you, Simon. And, you know, even successful cases like this one have challenges and uh, we all need to front up to those challenges. What did you find the most challenging in this arbitration? Yes, I completely agree. I mean, all arbitrations have their own uh, individual challenges. Uh, In this one, there's no doubt that whilst the international element of the arbitration was fun, it was also challenging to deal with. Responding to issues that might have arisen in Australian time, then taking instructions on those points from and giving advice to relevant individuals in India, London and the USA and then having to meet procedural deadlines set by reference to Singapore time required a lot of diligence, a lot of flexibility, but it was something that the Reed Smith team as a unit worked together seamlessly on in order to give the client truly global around-the-clock coverage on the matter. The other significant challenge was trying to maintain discipline over the claimant in the proceedings and ensure adherence to the arbitral procedure. The claimant was, as I mentioned earlier, unpredictable, and often took bad points or flouted the procedural timetable in the arbitration. In English court proceedings, in my experience, this is much easier to control and prevent, as generally speaking, the English court is much stricter on points of pleading and procedure and adherence to the rules. Arbitration, however, in my experience, is much more lenient and flexible, and an unfortunate consequence of this is that it is easier for a disruptive party to get away with pursuing invalid arguments or flouting the arbitration's procedure. We spent a lot of time trying to address this type of behaviour from the claimant, 
and ensured that we were engaged with the tribunal rapidly as soon as we could see that the claimant was attempting to behave in this way. You cannot let up the pressure in this regard. If you think something warrants a cost sanction, you should ask for it. You may not always get it in arbitrations, but even if you don't, the point is put into the tribunal's mind and prejudice or benefit is achieved in any event. Rogue, disruptive and dilatory conduct from an opponent is something you have to keep calling out when you see it, and ultimately in doing so, I think we significantly undermined the claimant's credibility, as the tribunal was able to clearly see, time and time again, the disjointed and shoot-from-the-hip manner in which the claimant was trying to get home on its claims. Thank you, Simon. And one of the things that's different about arbitration, as opposed to litigation, is how documentary um, disclosure sorry, uh, is carried out and the peculiar form in which that takes, which is invariably in international arbitration in the form of Redfern schedules. It'd be interesting if you could tell us a little bit about um, your experience of how disclosure and Redfern schedules happened in this case. Yes, of course. Um, In my experience, the Redfern schedule disclosure process is a critical turning point in arbitration disputes. I find that parties often use disclosure to try to batter the opposition into submission in order to pressure them into a settlement. In fact, often I believe a party's dispute strategy at the outset is to put in a wide-ranging and broad claim or defence, often having questionable merit, in order to reach disclosure where they can demand wide-ranging documentary disclosure in the hope that the threat of that and the burden it will pose on the opponent in terms of cost, time, potentially having to disclose sensitive information, will cause it to cave in and settle. I've seen this attempted many times. However, I've also seen it fail many times due to the Redfern schedule process. This particular case was an example of this. The outcome of the Redfern schedule process was that the claimant failed on almost all of its Redfern requests, whereas our client succeeded in nearly all of its. After the Redfern process concluded, and the claimant had found no silver bullet or smoking gun to support its claims, its case spiralled into disarray as the pressure of going to a final hearing loomed. The IBA rules on the taking of evidence in international arbitration are commonly used to provide a procedural basis for disclosure of documents. I normally try to insist on express reference to them in procedural timetables, as they are a useful tool for preventing tactical fishing expedition disclosure requests. When they are applicable in an arbitration, adhering to the provisions of Article 3 to the IBA rules is critical if a party wants to succeed in disclosure requests. If this is not done, it is easy, as a respondent to those requests, to pick them off for lacking specificity or relevance. In our particular case, the IBA rules applied and we presented measured, specific and refined requests explaining the relevance and necessity of the documents in each case with specific reference to provisions of the IBA rules to explain how they were satisfied. In contrast, our opponents adopted wide-ranging fishing expedition approach, which I believe was designed to cause concern to our client about the implications of disclosure if the requests were granted and therefore create pressure. But that approach failed, as we were able to cut it apart by reference to the IBA rules. Proactive planning for disclosure is critical in my view, and engaging with a client early about what documents they have, where they are, and how they can be obtained is essential. We were proactive in doing this, and our client was also very helpful, engaged, and organized in this process. 
what this meant was in the pleading phase of the arbitration, we were able to refer to and exhibit a significant number of key documents going to the heart of the dispute and which countered pleaded points made by the claimant. This took the wind out of the claimant's sails when it came to disclosure. We had already put into play a lot of key relevant documents dispelling their arguments, and that made it more difficult for the claimant to explain why further disclosure on certain points was needed, leaving many of the requests being nothing more than fishing expeditions. Thank you, Simon. Um, Now, you and I have done a number of arbitrations together, but this was the first time that we did one together under the SEAC rules, so the Singapore International Arbitration Centre, which is now on many estimations, the second most prolific arbitration centre globally. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you found SEAC in this arbitration. Yes, I mean, as you say, um, it was really good to get experience of a new institution. um, And it was interesting to see how SEAC compared to other arbitral institutions and rules that I've had more significant previous experience of. Um, such as the LCIA, the ICC, Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, Uncertile Rules, the LMAA, or the Swiss Rules. Uh, I find the SEAC rules to be very well written and clear, and I know that SEAC is good at regularly updating them. I think this is important as arbitration is a competitive market, and keeping up with the market in terms of meeting the expectations of users is essential. SEAC as an institute was responsive and diligent, And this was helpful as the last thing you want as a party to an arbitration is the Arbitral Institute delaying matters. Thank you, Simon. And this is the last question I'm going to pose to you. What were your main takeaway points from this arbitration? Sure. I think if I was to summarise, first, be relentless. I think this was key in the win for the client. The Global Readsmith team did not let up the pressure on the claimant at any point. We were constantly on them. Our turnaround of correspondence and submissions to put issues back onto the claimant was extremely expeditious and gave the claimant multiple headaches to deal with in a short time. I think ultimately the claimant could not cope with that constant pressure and its case went into disarray. The claimant started as the aggressor, but that position soon turned around and our client, the respondent, became the aggressor, driving the arbitration forward to a final hearing. That is not a happy position for any claimant to be in. Secondly, I'd say be commercial. This dispute was having a real live world impact on the client's business. We constantly had that in mind. And whilst it is interesting as a lawyer to consider and talk about legal authorities and principles, ultimately the most important thing to the client is what things mean for its business. We had that at the forefront of our mind when considering every issue and discussing it with the client. Finally, be precise. We won so many points in the arbitration because we were more precise than our opponents in our pleadings, submissions, red fern schedules, and correspondence by referring specifically to applicable rules, procedure, law, or documents. We backed up every point we made with something concrete. Doing so reinforces the credibility of your case, and when your opponent's not doing the same, the problems in their case start to unravel rapidly. In this regard, There's no harm in stating the obvious expressly, even if that lengthens your pleading or correspondence. Do not leave anything to doubt. If you have a rule, procedure, law, or document that backs up the point you want to make, make sure you reference it. Don't leave it to the tribunal to guess what you mean. 
Orson at the tribunal, no matter how learned or experienced, will pick up the point you're trying to make. Brevity is obviously desirable where possible, but it should not come at the expense of precision. By being precise, you're making it easier for a tribunal to find in your favour, in my view. Thank you, Simon. That was very, very interesting. I found all your answers very insightful. No, pleasure. Very good to speak to you, Yota. Well, thank you all for listening to this latest instalment of Arbitral Insights. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you found it useful and practical. And uh, we hope you'll listen to future episodes. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.